Not everything's 100% effective. Well, except, you know, what? Abstinence. Oh, well, thank you, Donna, but I think it's a little bit too late for that now. Hi, I'm Rachel Hampton. And I'm Sarah Marshall, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. That's right. That is not Madison's voice you hear. Today, we are joined by none other than Sarah Marshall, a writer and the host of the podcast, You're Wrong About and You Are Good. I am so excited you're here. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Thank you so much for having me over to your podcast house. <laughs> yes. Welcome to our home. We keep it fairly clean, but like it's not lovely. too clean that you think we're serial killers. <laughs> I love the cardigan that you gave me when we came in. Before we get into today's topic, though, we have to get into the big unavoidable thing that is happening online right now, which is about the Washington Post unmasking the woman behind the right wing propaganda Twitter account, Libs of TikTok. Um, I didn't know that reporting was called doxing now, but apparently it is. (laughs) It was bound to happen. Importantly... Travis Brown on Twitter had actually unearthed the history of this account before the Washington Post report on the 19th. But had you heard of Libs of TikTok before this piece? No, but it's funny because knowing about it now, it makes complete sense that it was there. It's like when you figure out where the smell was coming from. Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. it's a house with many smells, but this is one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very pungent, coordinated smell. <laughs> <laughs> It seems as if the groomer terminology and applying the term groomer to mm-hmm. anyone who has anyone who's a lib, I guess, um, yeah. essentially, like that has emerged fast and furious into kind of mainstream reporting in the last couple of months. So to me, it makes sense that this is obviously something that is seeping into cultural groundwater in a ton of places, but that there's kind of a centralized place of conversation and propaganda spreading around this too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the groomer lexicon very much felt astroturf to me. And that's what the Washington Post piece really kind of painted a really detailed picture of is how this Libs of TikTok account, which is a Twitter account, has had a really big impact on the Republican Party and has helped fuel like right wing outrage that has led to a lot of like anti-gay and transphobic legislation. It reminds me a lot of the Reddit forums um, from like 2013, 2014 called Tumblr in Action and Kotaku in Mm. Action, which Mm -hmm. did basically the exact same thing of having a centralized place where people could go to make fun of, at that point, the social justice warriors, at this point, the groomers. And of course, because nothing on the internet is new, all the right-wing wackadoos emerged to claim that the Washington Post had doxxed a private citizen by revealing the identity of the woman behind the account. And it's important to note here that these people do not understand how reporting works because it is not, in fact, doxing when a reporter finds publicly available information about a person at the helm of a powerful propaganda machine. But these people also know what they're doing. This is crying victim when really you're the perpetrator. Exactly. It's the way that they're turning what they're actually doing, which is doxing individual parents or teachers or school administrators or local officials, And saying that that is, in fact, what's fine. But to basically take 
the name that is registered to a domain name and put that in a Washington Post article is, that's the real crime. But that is all the time we have for that specific made-up moral panic because we have (laughs) another one to talk about on the show today. Today, we're going to talk about the sex lives of teenagers. It seems like the culture at large right now is convinced that Gen Z is the most prudish generation. They are allegedly turning their backs on the progressive ideals of sex positivity, and we're seeing headlines about Gen Z not having sex. They're all around us, the headlines, not the Gen Zers. And (laughs) we've been hearing about this since at least 2019. But are the youths actually sex averse or is there possibly something more going on there? Is sex positivity actually a positive thing? And why are we so obsessed with the kids' sex lives all the time and now and forever? We will get into all of that now and forever after the short break. (laughs) And we're back. So we have decided, apparently, as a wider culture, that Gen Z just is not fucking nearly enough. That is what everyone (laughs) is talking about. There are so many headlines across the internet about this supposed phenomena. Have you seen any of these? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm on Twitter, so I feel like it. part of the name of the game on social media is sort of manufactured uh, mm-hmm. outrage cycles. And yeah, this is, has been cropping up lately, hasn't it? So just last year alone, in the year 2020, we got pieces that included GQs, Gen Z, our puritine, but not for the reasons you think. Newsweeks, what's driving teens aversion to sex? BuzzFeeds, these Gen Z women think sex positivity is overrated. Rolling Stones, are sex-negative puritines taking over the internet? And Vice's, why Gen Zers are choosing celibacy. If you read all those headlines and not the pieces, as most of us tend to do, you might have the thought that perhaps Gen Z does not, they're not as horny for each other as previous generations. (laughs) So first, we have to establish that most of these pieces are based on very thin evidence. It's going to be a while before we have actual longitudinal data about the sexual attitudes of Gen Z, not least because the youngest member of Gen Z is 10 years old right now. Mm. And generations Mm. are fake and made up for marketing purposes as well. (laughs) But what data is actually out there to support the puritine narrative? So there are a few studies that most of these articles seem to be pulling from. The primary ones are from January 2021, where researchers determined adults 18 to 23 weren't having as much casual sex as that same age group in the early 2010s. And then one from 2020 that found that between 2000 and 2018, there was a significant decrease in men ages 18 to 24 having sex, but no meaningful change in that same time period for women, which is... A fascinating little dissonance. (laughs) And in yet another study, this one from March 2021, researchers found that the biggest factor for the reduction in casual sex among 18 to 23-year-olds is reduced alcohol consumption. But with men, there are also other factors, such as hours spent online or living with a parent, interestingly (laughs) enough. (laughs) So one of the funny things about the study is that it also says they found women would likely be having even less sex than they are if they were online less. But the researchers are also clear in their conclusion that they just don't have the data. 
as to why this is happening. They just know it's a thing that is happening. And that is kind of the crux of this entire Gen Z puritine myth is that people Mm. just have an idea that something is happening but have no idea why. There are so many just conjectures flying around. Some like sex neuroscientists, which is a field I did not know you could be in. Um, Deborah So in a Newsweek op-ed from last October suggested that young people aren't engaging in sex as frequently because of the increase in helicopter parenting and a decrease in adolescents getting jobs in their free time. So they're just not spending as much time away from their parents. And it is true, there is nothing as much of a buzzkill as being around your parents. It's funny to me that when we talk about the teenagers and how much sex they're supposed to be having, I mean, first of all, there's no correct amount of sex for teenagers to be having, or if there is, they've mm-hmm. never like me- reached that point on the teeter-totter. And B, I feel like we never want to identify the possibility that economics seem relevant to this. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that if it's harder to be working and to have the freedom of movement that comes from making a reasonable wage or being able to get a job um, or being able to establish emotional or literal independence from your parents you know it's um we could stop wrecking the economy that's a thought (laughs) however some are also arguing and you might have seen this coming that the availability of (laughs) online sex content means people Mm -hmm. are satisfying their sexual needs on their own thanks to pornography and are engaging in online sex acts including sexting or webcamming, which are not traditionally classified as sex. But others have also suggested that the reason for the sex decline of teenagers is because boys have fallen behind girls in education and are therefore disillusioned with sex because they aren't the ones on top anymore, which is my least favorite theory, which probably means that it's right. (laughs) Maybe. I mean, I found that, like, blaming uh, things on women in the workplace or in mm-hmm. higher ed is often a distraction because, look, one of the things I do is connect, find the shortest distance between any topic and the satanic panic. And maybe weirdly, <laughs> I'm going to identify here a connection to the fact that the satanic panic was used partly to scare women for going to work and putting their kids in daycare. The implication is, like... You'd better be careful about going back to work, you dumb bitch, because your child's <laughs> going to be taken by a coven. So wow. I'm hesitant about this. <laughs> <laughs> so the real reason is satanic panic. I love that. We've solved it's it. Like it always is. <laughs> the episode, episode's over. Um, <laughs> so we spent a lot of time thinking about why other people think teens are prudes. But let's actually think look at what Gen Z is saying themselves. Also, importantly, the oldest person in Gen Z right now is 26, I believe. Like, 1996 Mm. is the last year, is the last cutoff. So they are teens, but they're not only teens. So that's that's an important consideration. Some of them qualify to pay for their own health care. So from the articles that talk directly to Gen Z, like the BuzzFeed piece we mentioned about sex positivity, that is what seems to be the phrase on everybody's lips. From... What the Zoomers interview think is that sex positivity is kind of an out, 
dated way to look at sexual interactions, that it's overrated and that it hasn't really progressed along with the rest of the world. And that the previous iterations of sex positivity were very focused on the pro-sex aspect, but not necessarily the power dynamics that are inherent in pretty much any sexual interaction. Right. And, you know, is it bad for them to point that out? Uh, Let's explore that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Exactly. And the concept of sex positivity, we first began to see this in the 1960s. And it's long also been considered to mean that non-traditional sex acts aren't bad and we have to take ourselves out of a good-bad binary, which has essentially dictated at least uh, American discourse about sex to that point in time. And then we see this transformation of the idea over the years the same way. I mean, a good example of this kind of thing is how emotional labor originally meant specifically the -hmm. expectation that you had a cheerful demeanor while doing a job. It's emotional labor for the 16-year-old who is working at a very busy McDonald's to smile at me while they give me my shake. And it has since sort of seeped out of that little holding cell and turned into terminology that we use to talk about a lot of other concepts, including interpersonally outside of any kind of a job. And that loss of clarity for a term is maybe inevitable over time, but it also makes it harder to understand what we're mutually talking about. So sex positivity eventually comes to mean something like women should be free to do whatever they want and what they want should be embracing casual sex as a form of liberation. But this leads to a lot of younger women through the years thinking sex is something that they are required to do in order to be liberating. It becomes an expectation. It is, and this is not my wonderful phrase, but I think it's great, (laughs) the girl bossification of casual sex. (laughs) (laughs) It's my favorite phrase that I've ever come up with. It's so good. (laughs) And that's really what it feels like, where it's this expectation that something that men traditionally have only had access to, whether it's the corner suite or it's casual Mm. sex, is inherently liberatory if women also get to participate in it. Right. And then that comes directly from the idea that like anything men like, it must be good. And the idea of being Mm -hmm. led into it must be this exciting achievement. And it's like... American masculinity is really a culture of mas- of masochism and repression. Yes. It feels like the kind of feminism of the early aughts or the 90s never really grappled with the flaws in sex positivity, or at least the mm-hmm. kind of commodification of that kind of feminism. And those flaws seem like the ones that Gen Z can't really stop seeing, especially after Me Too, If there's anything that Me Too revealed, it was that power dynamics and sexual interactions are in no way eradicated by women being able to have casual sex. But it makes sense that a new generation is trying to basically push back against the way that sex positivity was portrayed to them in media. But they're also importantly very young. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's not always the best at coming up with the solutions at what is in essence a very complicated ideological and theoretical issue. This is an issue that I think feminist scholars are trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why, as you mentioned before, so much of the language of 
theory, like emotional labor or sexual assault can get caught up in these discussions. I think it comes from a good place. Usually, I think it usually comes from a place of trying to name these unequal power dynamics. But I think specifically in terms of when we're talking about Gen Z and their alleged reticence to sex, the overuse of these words that are usually used in the context of abuse really gives off the impression that younger people are just anti-sex, period, because all of these relationship dynamics are being described in the language of abuse, which is pretty sex negative. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get into why, culturally, we are so obsessed with the sex lives of teens and how the internet has, surprise, only accelerated that obsession. Super easy questions to answer. So easy. Hello, if you are a new listener to ICYMI, welcome. We are so glad to have you. In case you missed it, yes, we make that pun every single week. We come out twice a week. Our most recent episode was on Wednesday, and it was about the dearly departed Club Penguin, and also the heyday of online browser games and their untimely demise. You don't want to miss it, so make sure to subscribe. And we're back. Before we attempt to write a dissertation, we'd be remiss not to bring up the fact that Gen Z is probably definitely the most sexually progressive generation that has existed thus far. In the past 20 years, the like wider acceptance of queer people has just led to more people embracing non-heteronormative identities. Gen Z has broadened the queer umbrella. They've kind of blown up or attempting to blow up traditional male-female binary roles. And it just tracks that as you think more about sex and gender as it pertains to your sense of self, that it gives you a little bit of distance from societal pressure of what a normal, heavy air quotes, teen sex life should look like. So for a while, it felt like there was this question of just how can Gen Z be so sexually progressive and also be having less sex? But talking about getting outside of binaries, right? These two things aren't as mutually exclusive as they seem. It's much easier to not feel like you have to do something when you're presented with so many possibilities of what gender and sexuality looks like or can look like. Mm. So now the big question inevitably appears, and now we have to look at ourselves. Why are adults so obsessed with how much sex teens are having? Like, it's objectively, it's weird, right? To spend (laughs) this much time thinking about how and why and where teens are fucking. But before we get into the why of, I mean, we as adults are discussing this, it's kind of important to note that teenager as a concept didn't exist until about the 1940s. And surprise, surprise, it's all about capitalism, baby. They became their own distinct social class because at this point, teens were another market to access. They had money because they were getting jobs and Capitalism wanted it. So teenagers, as a class, were born. It's kind of all a big marketing scam. Did not see that one coming. (laughs) (laughs) It's a huge surprise to anybody in the world. (laughs) 
But before the invention of teenagers, and this is what's kind of fascinating about the idea or the panic around teen sex, is that you basically went from being a child to being of marrying age. Like teen sex wasn't a concern because children were having children and that was just normal. (laughs) But now teens are this new other thing and it kind of gives this protracted childhood. And if there's anything America, the world writ large, loves to spend a lot of time thinking about, it's about the dangers to the children. So marketing campaigns begin targeting teens in addition to their parents. And when it comes to marketing, as everybody knows, sex sells. So as time goes on, advertising embraces either teenage sexuality or concerns about teenage sexuality because, I mean, God knows I as a teenage girl grew up knowing that if I wasn't careful to sort of be an exhausted uh, farmer of my own body, (laughs) then I would become very repulsive very quickly. So Mm -hmm. it's a lot of anxiety in the mix, too. And we, of course, don't have time to get into the entire history of adolescence, although I would love nothing more. But we can say that while parents have always been concerned about their children and what they're encountering, it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? (laughs) Once the Internet entered the picture, suddenly it's a whole new rodeo. So the Internet offers a sexual experience that is entirely unmitigated by geographic boundaries, by parents, by the realities of meat space, essentially. Mm. <laughs> Before teenagers could get online, they could only get as much sexual content as they could actually lay their hands on, physically <laughs> acquire, if you can imagine. And wow. their fantasies existed in the physical world to some extent. That is no longer true. While you have to know how to navigate online spaces pretty secretively, the internet still offered and continues to offer a freedom that was unthinkable in the past. And for the first generation of children on the internet, they knew more about how to navigate those spaces than their parents could ever hope to and could still ever hope to. This freedom is easily a double-edged sword because there's the wild, wild west of the internet and then the popularity of sex positivity kind of all conglomerating and mixing together in the 90s, early aughts. And it was a sort of sexual free-for-all that, for me at least, kind of perpetuated this pressure of casual sex as the norm. I, sorry mom, encountered a lot of things on the internet as a child that I definitely should not have. I mean, Two Girls, One Cup was just passed around in my middle school band room. (laughs) Um, And having access to things like that at the age of 11 or 12 probably wasn't the best for a developing brain. But like thinking about Two Girls, One Cup in the band room, I'm just like, wow, that's cute. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm sure there's something far worse out there right now. And it's just all normal and it washes over you. And it's funny because I don't even think we have the data on what that means for people like of my generation, like what that did to our brain. So it's really funny that we think that we can understand what's happening with the generation that's like 10 years old right now. That is, for all intents and purposes, the first one to come up post-internet, the first one to come up after all the kind of exposés have been written about Mm. the dangers of online yeah so i mean it's really a variation of the same fear that we saw playing out uh, after 
teen dramas became ubiquitous, right? We have the premiere of Beverly Hills 90210 in the early 90s, essentially building that genre. And then after that, the hits keep coming and they don't stop coming. So we have (laughs) Dawson's Creek. We have Degrassi. We have The Secret Life of the American Teenager. We have Gossip Girl. And now we're on to Euphoria. And these shows all helped build a cultural understanding of what teenagers are doing. And that has always included sex. The moral panics uh, priority list is interesting because I remember the teen Mm -hmm. sex and teen pregnancy panic. And then we got to, you know, should we protect the teens from getting murdered at school? No, we should not (laughs) panic. No. And that really Mm -mm. took over. And yeah, now we've graduated to protect the teens from discovering their own gender panic. Before there was too much sex. Now there's not enough sex, but the right kind of sex, because we can't have the wrong kind of sex, because that is also dangerous. And it kind of just goes to show that as long as teens, as long as children exist, there, there's going to be panics about sex lives of teens or lack thereof. It's mm-hmm. one of the first parts of a child's life that parents genuinely have zero control over, no matter how much they try to insert control, which honestly, probably a good thing because it's not like historically adults have been great at teaching kids sex education. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, most sex education in the U.S. is still extremely abstinence focused. It highlights the dangers of sex rather than focusing on offering any meaningful practical explanations about sex itself and the issues connected to it, like consent and power dynamics and If nobody's going to teach them, the kids are going to figure it out for themselves. And that is what they have been doing. And they're going to continue to do it. I think there's this general thought that with the kind of sexual positivity movement of the 90s and the early aughts, that as sex has become more available and casually accepted, as online dating has made finding someone outside of your immediate circle of friends more readily available, that that just meant that more people would be having more sex always and that that would always be a good thing. And I don't know why it took this long, but we're learning now that that isn't the case. (laughs) (laughs) And at this point, I feel like we've really spent the entire episode saying it's really too early to tell how exactly Gen Z is going to navigate this moment we're in, which is like a very complicated moment because we're in between the failure of sex positivity to contend with things like Me Too But we're also navigating what is essentially an all-out assault on sexual freedom, on abortion, on contraception, on gay rights. And so I don't envy being a teenager right now having to deal with figuring out what sexual freedom looks like at this moment. At the end of the day, I think adults like to fixate on what teenagers are doing for a lot of reasons. And one is that we are afraid that they're going to figure out more than we did and be happier than we were able to be. And, you know, go do it. Make us scared. All right, that is the show. We'll be back in your feed on Wednesday, so please subscribe. It is the best way to never miss an episode. Madison will be back. Please leave a rating and review in Apple or Spotify. Tell your friends about us. Tell your teens about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod, which is also where you can DM us your questions like, why aren't the teens having sex? We might answer it. <laughs> you can also always drop us a note at ICYMI at slate.com. 
ICYMI is produced by Daniel Schrader, Rachel Hampton, and Madison Malone Kircher. We're edited by Allegra Frank. And Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. See you online. Or at the next Moral Panic.